Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that plays around with cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including a $2 million grant to an Australian startup company that's developing an electric vehicle. We hear of a survey that said that stubborn, angry men are more likely to buy luxury cars. Rob Fraser and I discussed the Hyundai Elantra's launch in New York and what it means for the Australian market. And Brian Smith and I discussed some unusual motoring and transport stories, including a bicycle shop owner who doesn't like bicycle priority measures. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and all our previous programs are podcast on iTunes or Spotify or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. New technological development is not just happening overseas. An Australian startup is developing an autonomous electric vehicle that will use a solar roof and lithium-ion battery system. Applied Electric Vehicles Proprietary Limited is being supported by the government to the tune of a $2 million grant from the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. AEV's vehicle will generate up to 60% of its energy requirements from the sun. The use of a smaller battery pack means easier charging from a common 240-volt wall socket. The $7.65 million project is in partnership with Japanese company Teijing Limited, who is helping to develop the vehicle's lightweight materials and manufacturing methods. Each year, 1.3 million people die around the world as a result of road accidents. That's 3,700 per day, and the number of serious injuries is much higher. Transportation leaders from 140 countries have agreed on an ambitious global target to completely eliminate traffic deaths. The Stockholm Declaration aims to reduce traffic fatalities by at least 50% over the next 10 years, with the goal of eradicating road deaths and serious injuries by 2050. All the countries in attendance endorse the declaration, except the United States. In a statement, the US dissociated themselves from certain paragraphs that they say muddle our focus and detract attention from data-driven scientific policies and programs that have successfully reduced fatalities on roadways. The US's per capita road fatality rate is higher than any other member of the OECD and US pedestrian deaths are currently the highest since 1988. Last year, overall SUV sales were down a little bit, but the very small and small SUV sales held their ground. So far this year, sales of the Mitsubishi ASX small SUV are down from a stellar growth of 2019, but they still lead the segment. The ASX is Mitsubishi's second best-selling car behind the Triton Ute. Like the previous Lancer sedan, this is a relatively quiet achiever. Base and middle models get a 2-litre engine, while the top specs GSR and Exceed get a 2.4-litre engine. 
The entry level has a manual gearbox, but all the others have CVTs. This new model gets LED headlights, daylight running lights and fog lights. It looks good, although nearly too busy at the front. Priced between $24,000 and a bit over $33,000, plus on-road costs. What comes first? Your attitude and therefore the car you buy? Or does the car bring out something else? Jan-Erik Longquist, Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Helsinki, says that previous research has confirmed that drivers of expensive cars are more likely to break traffic regulations. But Professor Longquist approached the question from a different angle by asking whether specific types of people are drawn to high-status cars. The answers were unambiguous. Self-centred men who are argumentative, stubborn, disagreeable and unempathetic are much more likely to own a high-status car. It is a conclusion that made the headlines, but we don't want to stop good people buying cars that may have well-developed safety features. One of the more unexpected results was that another personality type is also drawn to high-status cars, the conscientious. It is this part of the research that BMW, Mercedes and Audi are likely to emphasise. Many television programs show men modifying motorbikes, cars and pickups, but are they doing so in a responsible way? Henry Heavy D. Sparks and Diesel Dave Kiley, better known as the Diesel Brothers through their Discovery Channel program, have been ordered to pay a fine equivalent of more than 1.3 million Australian dollars for illegally modifying the emission control systems of diesel pickups. The lawsuit was brought by the Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment, who say that the modifications performed on the trucks increased their emissions by 10 to 30 times. The Diesel Brothers claimed their efforts reduced the cost of maintenance and improved fuel economy. There is extensive research about the harmful effect of diesel fumes, including the Hasselt University in Belgium, which found that diesel fumes start to harm children in pregnant mothers. And that has been the news. Some cars are plain ugly. Some are quite forgettable. But some have a simply beautiful design. Rob Fraser tells us about one of his favourite cars. Simple elegance is probably the best way to describe the Audi A5 Coupe. Its low, sleek form with flowing lines exudes grace even while standing still. As a 2 plus 2 Coupe, it affords enough room for the front passengers, but definitely fits into the squashed, very occasional transport for the more than two category. Personally, I'd love to see it as a two-seat Coupe with a liftback. There is, however, a five-door version as well. Powered by a designated 45 TFSI 2-litre turbo engine with a smooth 7-speed sports auto dual-clutch transmission and Audi's famous Quattro driveline, the A5 Coupe simply glides along the road. Driver engagement is excellent, with the vehicle seemingly waiting for the driver to tell it what to do. It's also surprisingly good value, starting from around $79,500. Of course, options and the usual on-road costs add to that. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au
Hyundai has just had a world launch, a first show of their new Elantra. It's a sedan. It fits in what Australia calls the small car class, but that means that it's not very small or very, very small. There are categories below that. It is typically Corolla and Mazda 3 and also Hyundai's i30. So they've got two in that market. Why and is it important? Let's talk to Rob Fraser about that. Go, Rob. David, how are you? Good. Good. The Elantra, they've launched a new one or shown a new one worldwide. Do you think that might be significant for Australia? It's due here in the second half of this year. Look, I think we're probably in some ways following trends around the world, in some ways just a little bit ahead. And in our seemingly never-ending desire for SUVs, we're probably a little bit ahead. The Elantra has been a very successful car for Hyundai over the years, but you know the, the market is changing. I wonder, they talked about it being lower, wider and longer. So whether they're trying to make cars that are a distinctively different look to the SUVs. I think of the their cousin, the, the Kia Stinger. So that was, you know, a stunning looking car, although not selling in great numbers, yet important for the image. And Kia have done well against most other people, against nearly, uh, practically all other people, in this small car class. I, I think there's two things to that. One, they have a really great offering. And also, too, as Kia themselves admit, they were left with a bit of clear space because other people opted out of the segments. Hmm. Now, the Toyota Corolla... Their sales last year were down nearly 14%. The Mazda, sorry, the yeah, the Mazda 3 was down nearly 20%. Uh, the Hyundai i30 held ground and came up to second place. Uh, but the Elantra now, it has sold in the past, but really it's uh, selling very little. The i30 would be outselling it at least 10 to 1. Where, is there room in the market for this? They try to sell it as a bit of a sporty car along the way. Do, do, do you see a distinction? Would you be picking one over the other? I think there's definitely a market. How big it is, I don't know. I mean, I actually like the look of the car. It looks pretty good, actually. Hmm. But I think the number of people that are looking to buy a sedan, if it was a lift back, it might have a wider appeal. But a sedan, I think people are just moving away from that in just in general terms. I mean, the i30, very successful car. And actually, you mentioned Mazda 3. Wasn't that long ago where Mazda 3 was the top-selling car for the year? Yeah. But it's gone down. And that's how much the market's changed. But the interesting, the Elantra sort of has a fastback look, but you're right, where the Stinger has a great advantage is this notchback, so the whole of that rear comes up and you can get into the boot wonderfully well. I love that. The Hyundai i30 starts at about 20 grand and a bit, plus on roads, of course, all these figures, and goes way up to some hot versions. The Elantra at the moment starts at about uh, a bit under 22,000. Uh, so it's a little bit premium. They do have the sporty models, but then again, the i30 has now come in with this N-line sport approach. It's a bit crowded in there. Look, very crowded, but as you said, they're trying to make a strong distinction between the two to give people a real choice. And yeah. and I think we still continue to need this type of vehicle to be able to give people choice because the world would be just a little bit bland if everyone drove around in SUVs. 
The size of the sedan market has declined significantly, but it's still big, of course. Now, when they were talking about this car, it's not surprising the designer talked about emotionally expressive design, that it really is a strategy based on digital design techniques called parametric dynamics. I love those words. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you're impressed with that. Inside, yes. 64 colour mood lighting is an option, and they've described it as a dynamic disruptor. Now, you and I have been driving some cars just recently where the connectivity is not easy, and the new Elantra, uh, Android Auto and Apple CarPlay, are the first in the segment with a wireless connection. So they say, for the American market at least. So is that a real feature that while we might love the look of it and what have you, it's really what happens inside and the ease of that that's going to make the difference? I think that might be a little bit of marginal movement on top. You know, that might be something that will tip them over the edge from buying this as opposed to something else. I love the fact that it's got wireless connectivity because, you know, having USB plugs running around to your phone is just its a bit of a pain, to be honest. And you can have wireless Bluetooth, so why not wireless... Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. Would it convince people to buy this car over an SUV or a hatchback? I don't think so. I think people are either looking for a sedan or they're looking for a hatchback. That connectivity, we've been driving a certain Peugeot. How do you, do you find the USB? Because when I hopped into the car, I struggled and I still haven't quite found it yet. Where, where exactly is it? Well, it took me a day or two to find it, I have to admit. It's a little bit embarrassing. But it's... It's it's tucked in underneath, behind the transmission tunnel. Very clever design, but it's a little bit of form over function because to actually plug it in, you've got to sort of be an acrobat to to get, you know, bend your body around that way. And for me, it was actually getting out on the knees and, and actually stretching in to, to plug it in because I physically couldn't plug it in just sitting in the driver's seat. That's probably because I'm larger than the average bear, but mm. but it does show that while these design features are there, a, you've got to know they're there, which I guess if it was your car, you would. But B, sometimes they're not all that practical, even though they might be clever design. Inside is a 10 and a quarter inch infotainment system. I think that's good. And the graphic design of the dashboard is far more user friendly from what I can see, basically, at a distance. So I think that's where things like the Peugeot is doing very well, as is the Citroen. So it's simplicity and effectiveness rather than just flashiness and over-the-top graphics is an important direction to go to? Look, I think so. And I think the way, I mean, now we have the, the phone detection cameras everywhere. So that connectivity, that being able to do everything you want to do without distracting yourself from driving, I think is exceptionally important and will only continue to get more important as time goes on. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that as one of the elements of um, an ANCAP five-star safety rating. Just my opinion. Yeah. If if it doesn't, it should. Well, yes. But then that brings in a whole other argument about, you know, if you then need to look down at the centre screen to press buttons to make the phone call, how is that any different to touching a phone? You know, so there's there's a whole lot of differences there. This talks very much about an enhanced voice interaction, which allows you not only to dial a phone number, but to change the air conditioning and, and a whole range of things that we got much better at voice recognition that will see us interact far more by voice. Although there's a couple of cars I've driven recently that I've ended up shouting 
at the, well, I guess the steering wheel more than anything. I, I was actually just thinking as you were saying that, given my predilection for alternate use of words on occasions, the car might end up very confused as to what it needs to do. <laughs> it's got to understand Australian. Rob, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thanks, David. Talk to you later. See ya. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. large passenger car and wagon segment has unfortunately been in decline over the last few years. However, there are some great cars left that are well worth a test drive. Rob Fraser has just driven one of the best. Peugeot 508 GT sports wagon boasts excellent technology and drivetrains plus stunning design. While driving it, it was amazing how many people stopped to look at it while parked or while we were driving. It's simply beautiful. Typically French, the 508 GT has some clever design features as well as some seemingly that defy explanation. That is part of the charm of the vehicle. The charm also extends to the elegant and stylish interior. The relationship between the steering wheel and the instruments needs to be experienced. And the best feature without doubt is the front seat massage function. It was on constantly when driving, and when you jump into another car, you really miss it. Priced from just under $56,000 plus the usual costs, the Peugeot 508 GT Sports Wagon is amongst the best in class. You're listening to Overdrive. Over the years, Mazda 3, and before that, the 323, has been a solid pillar of the Mazda success in Australia right through from the late 70s. Rob Fraser has taken the latest Mazda 3 for a test drive. Mazda has been a part of Australian families for over 40 years. My sister included, who had an early model 323 and drove it for nearly 500,000 kilometres without a problem. The latest 3 is a long way from that early version. The current model is a sleek design in both sedan and hatch versions and has levels of comfort, ride and handling that are amongst the best in class. Mazda interiors have always been sophisticated, competing with the best. The latest three again is no exception. It is a comfortable, quiet place for occupants and cocoons the driver. One exceptionally important new feature is the Mazda's owner manual is now a function of the car, something I have been asking about for years. With a choice of two engines and transmissions and priced from just under $25,000 through to just under $38,000 plus the usual costs, the Mazda 3 shines in a still important segment. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Well, we've got Brian Smith back to talk a bit more light-hearted subjects than the last one we did, which was the coronavirus. But uh, let's uh, get down to some quirky news. Brian, thank you for your time. You've got a story about how hard it is to bring about change. Indeed, David, this is about bicycles. And you'd expect that a bicycle shop owner might be interested in a proposal that would improve cycle access in a city. But the owner of the Valencia Cyclery in San Francisco, Paul Olszewski, 
is one of the opponents of a plan to get traffic out of the road that the Valencia Cyclery is in. And to the surprise of many, he has been a, a voice against the removal of cars. He says most of his customers drive their car to his bike shop. Now, David, this is a bit unusual, isn't it, that you would think making a street more bicycle-friendly would result in the sale of more bicycles. But in this case, he's presenting an interesting view that uh, really his customers buy bikes, they don't necessarily ride them. Well, yes, not to the shop. He has a couple of points that we'll raise. I'm not saying they're justified, but we need to not use them as gotcha facts for not, you know, therefore don't do it, but to understand his point, but to try and work around it. But I do say this, our friend Rob Fraser, who's been in business management, said to me one time that no matter how much the people that benefit the most from the change, and benefit being the operative word, are still ones that are hard to get them to accept change. And I think there's a lot to that. Now, he does have these gotcha facts. Old people you know, bring a bike to be repaired so you can't ride it, or they're going home with a new bike for their kids so they can't do that. Yet I think we've really got to say, OK, if that's the issue, wouldn't it be better to have an environment that focuses on bikes? How can we get around that? And it might even be a motorised little trolley that can take the bike out or bring the bike in to wherever you've parked your car. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the proposal here is to remove parking from that street, but not from every street. So there's adjoining streets and there's a parking garage or a parking lot, something like two minutes away from the man's shop. One of the things that I've noticed in my years as a transport consultant is that quite often curbside parking is used by people who own or work in the businesses nearby. So people will often scream loudly that I need that parking space for my customers. You know, I'll go out of business without it. But you invariably find that they and their workers take these prime positions and that you'll see them come out and move their car if it's time limited. So I think there's a bit of selfishness in there, David. But I I think that he's talking about people who, you know, are buying a bike for their kid and, and taking it home in a car or bringing that bike that's not working to them. But just imagine the, the new group of people who are walking and cycling who would then visit that bike shop to buy things or even to say, well, here's an opportunity for me to actually ride safely. I'll buy a bike now. So I, th- I think it's a weird and very self-limiting kind of perspective to have. But People are crazy, aren't they? People are unusual. People don't make logical decisions. To change the existing is to go to the unknown, and that's what makes it difficult. There was a guy who opposed parking outside his shop to be replaced by bike parking, even though the shop was a cafe, which on a Saturday morning was absolutely packed full of cyclists who, having been on their ride that morning and going for breakfast, eat a lot because they've used a lot of energy. So it's not, you know, give me one muffin and a small coffee. It's, you know, give me five milkshakes and a full breakfast. Yeah, and you're talking about people who are not riding a bike because they can't afford to drive a car. These are generally very wealthy people often on on high-grade bicycles. They've got money to spend. And, of course, bike touring is fantastic for local businesses because people stay longer and eat more. Yes. The whole principle is got to get into that. You've got to get to the point where you understand where enhancing the fraternity of bike riders is to your benefit as well as to the benefit of the community around you. You could then become 
the hero of the local community. There's whole politics. There was a street in the middle, taking up your point about shopkeepers parking, in the middle of Leichhardt that they changed to our parking with immense complaints from the local shopkeepers. Their turnover went up 400% because people could get to it. Actually get to their parking. Now, this guy will say, well, hang on, it's the other way around. But what's wrong with walking a block? Yes, yes. I've made that mistake. I once realised I went up a battle axe block and I came back out, drove out to go away, and I realised I left something behind. I nearly drove back. And I thought, hang on, it's 100 metres, you know, 50 metres. And here I am thinking about driving back, whereas the walk. We've just got to get over that that image that we have that we mechanise everything. Well, I've even seen, David, uh, data that suggests that shops alongside new cycleways where, where they've replaced parking get huge returns and that some of the best economic returns uh, in, for investment are in cycle facilities. Yes, from from turning over that. Now, it's hard to change people, I have to admit that. And that was Brian Smith talking the more unusual stories of motoring and transport here on Overdrive. You're listening to Overdrive. Rob Fraser continues his love affair with fast SUVs, this week driving a new addition to the Jaguar F-Pace lineup, the SVR. The Jaguar SVR brings with it a host of performance additions, exterior modifications and interior trim. The main one, however, is that delicious 405-kilowatt, 5-litre supercharged V8. Technology includes adaptive dynamics, on-demand all-wheel drive with adaptive surface response, and variable valve active exhaust system, plus a host more. Let's get to the performance. The SVR will rocket from 0 to 100 km an hour in 4.3 seconds, and will top out north of 280 km an hour. The chassis dynamics handled everything asked of it without fuss. The sound of the exhaust is awesome. The balance between steering input and throttle input allows the driver to revel in the responsiveness and balance. Priced from a bit over $140,000, plus the usual costs, it's not for everyone. But for those that do buy one, they will not be disappointed. Buying a car is a big decision. For many people, the next new car they select will be part of their life for a decade, sometimes even more. So, doing your research first is essential. Check out the hundreds of car reviews available free of charge at Car Review Central before you head out car shopping. Unbiased and completely independent, Car Review Central will let you know the good bits and maybe the not-so-good bits of each new car on the Australian market. You can even easily look through other car and SUV models within the same category to see if maybe there's a better option. Just type in carreviewcentral.com.au. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, Rob Fraser, Jordan Trembath and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au and all our programs are podcast on iTunes and Spotify or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.